Mate, this is going to be awesome. It's not stayed to come down for that one. Hit him, hit him. It's more than just a hobby, it's who we are. Cracker. That's why we hunt. Welcome to the Educated Hunter Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ultimate OE. As most of you would know, Curran and I run a business called Ultimate OE. We specialise in sending young Kiwis and Aussies to Canada and Scotland to work in the hunting industry. Applications for next hunting season, so 2020, both in Canada and Scotland, are now open. As hunters, we're not often happy with inauthentic experiences. We're always looking for something adventurous, more exciting and more unique. Same goes for overseas experiences. We deliver once-in-a-lifetime opportunities working for the best outfitters in Canada and the best hunting estates in Scotland. Our train-before-you-go setup means that we can secure all the best jobs with the best employers, with the best people in the best spots, all ahead of time because they know you're going to turn up with the knowledge and skills to hit the ground running when you get there. If you're interested in an OE in Canada or Scotland next year based around hunting in the mountains, it doesn't get much better in my opinion. If you think you might be interested or just want to learn a little bit more about what we do, feel free to get in touch and get us on email at ultimateoemail at gmail.com. You can flick us a PM on Facebook or Instagram, either through the Educated Hunter or Ultimate OE pages. Either will work, whatever blows your hair back. Enjoy the show. Today's podcast is a little bit different. It's not with a hunter. Today's podcast is with Peter Langlands. And Peter, in my eyes, is a leader in the foraging, I guess, of goods. Peter essentially travels around New Zealand, primarily the South Island. And then even, I guess, if you narrow it down further, likely he will find him on the Banks Peninsula. But he forages plants, fruits, nuts, mushrooms, uh, fish. And, and essentially, as he words in the podcast, you know, he could live off foraged goods. But So he, he does this as a recreation, but he also forages and supplies, uh, I guess, very high-end restaurants and chefs that are looking for a point of difference and have a specific skill set as well. So not only, you know, does he sort of fill his time and get excited by the amount of foraging he does, he's managed to turn that into a in small part an income. Um, so super interesting chat. I, I learned a lot. I knew nothing about foraging before we sat down and had a conversation. So there was a lot to be learned. And I guess that's really what I wanted to get out of it. Because I, like I said, I knew nothing about it. And it's something that kind of interests me. And, and the relation in how he looks after his foraged goods and respects the foraged goods and the environment they come from basically was exactly how I or other hunters would word the way we do what we do. So it was, yeah, it's there's a, there's a lot of ties there. It's very interesting. Enjoy the podcast. First up for a very rounded question, like like what is foraging per definition? Obviously, my understanding of it is that, that you are, I guess, picking fruits or foods, uh, I guess, from an organic source, if you like, but it, there must be more to it than that. Yeah, it basically is covers everything that hunting and fishing doesn't. So it just we're talking pretty big diversity. Think, you know things like um, a lot of wild green plants, fruit trees, mushrooms, you know shellfish, just all those sort of items that people gather. And you know we're well over six thousand species in New Zealand of wild forage foods that are available. So it's a pretty massive diversity. Really? Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's a lot when you say it like yeah, that. No, it is. Um, so we're Oh well, so we find um, we're finding new species all the time too, um, because a lot of the species that I forage here in the South Island are um, generally introduced species. So they'll uh, they've um, people are also working with the same species overseas, so we can see how other people are using them and then just adapt uh, to you know local conditions. So yeah, uh, the native, the indigenous foraging though is still quite significant, and we do have some great indigenous species that we forage as well. So it, it, it's really is quite a you know it, it, it's a re- ever expanding field of opportunity really because we are literally finding new species every week and that are in New Zealand. So the so the I guess the imported ones or the you know the species that aren't native. Yeah, were they? 
are they typically brought here as a food source or are they you know have another purpose and then that food source has been adapted or found I don't, like yeah excuse my wording i don't know which way to go but sure no no well a lot of them have actually been bought intentionally but also a lot mm-hmm. have come over accidentally with the other species as well so yeah there's there's been a lot of accidental sort of releases of um, species in new zealand we're generally looking for areas where there's for foraging that are best for foraging we've got a diversity of microclimates and we've also got a diversity of uh, cultural settlement of the landscape so areas like um, central Otago around Queenstown are really good because there's a real depth of history to the region with the um, Chinese settlers and then um, mm-hmm. waves of sort of colonisation of the, the Wakatipu Basin and the Wakatipu Basin too is also a really good area for foraging because it's a junction of a lot of river valleys and it sits at as a basin, still at quite a low altitude given how far inland it is, and so it really is a, a good region for foraging. Hmm. Combined, of course, with the fact that we've got lots of restaurants on the doorstep up there that working on with just one or two of them to uh, supply seasonal um, items that they um, the, the chefs can work with. So is that, is that what, well, looking on your social media, uh, I think you call yourself a professional forager? Yeah. Is that what you do? You, um, you forage produce one for yourself but also you know to for restaurants or other users if you like ah uh, yes yep no that's part of the spectrum mm-hmm. uh, they mm-hmm. also um have written a series of pdf guides t- to help people identify the main groups of edible species so i've done a guide on edible wild greens edible uh, seaweeds edible mushrooms um, edible wildflowers and just finishing off a guide at the moment on um, edible wild trees in New Zealand which would also of course inc- include our uh, fruit and nuts yep. so yeah but you know it is, is hmm. exciting working in with chefs they lead a lot of the innovation with the use of the foraged foods and we can pick out some really innovative ways of using foraged foods just through um social media channels and seeing what people are doing overseas i also do public education and tours with foraging and in countries like the uk um you know there are people that do work as professional foragers that um will take groups out and there are a few people doing it in new zealand now including myself it is fairly um specialized but you've certainly really got to have confidence with what you're dealing with and being able to clearly identify um any toxic or poisonous species or mm. environments where it might not be that safe to forage from. Mm. Yeah, no, no doubt. So how did you, how did you get into foraging? Because it's like you know, well, I in my circle anyway, it wouldn't I wouldn't call it a mainstream activity. Uh, that that being said, when I was younger, you know, like uh, my father made like a rosehip syrup. Oh yes, yep. Um, and we always picked mushrooms when we were out. You know, right from rabbit shooting through to the to the big game shooting. Yes. And I guess we, you know, gathered. Uh, I, guess, I don't know. If, yeah, I guess it's it's wild, but um, like the wild asparagus from around the around Central Tago, and so I guess we did forage, but that was really. I guess, I just followed my father's footsteps. But how did you like? How did you get into foraging? Um. Yeah. Well, my late father was a very keen trout fisherman, and so used to go. We used to go on a lot of family tr- trips into. Um, the North Canterbury High Country, and you know, I just enjoyed going out, and um, we, we often, as a family, would um, collect things like blackberries, gooseberries, wild mint, wild apples, and cook them up. And you know, my father's from Scotland, and yeah, you know, he was enjoyed being in the outdoors there as well. So, tuned in just through family experiences, really, when I was young, and done a lot of bird research conservation work and outdoors work as a fly fishing guide as well and so I've, I've just had a huge amount of time in the outdoors and exposed to all the different environments you know so bird research work took me down to the catlins where i was working in a coastal area for out over the autumn and i did that for a period of four years and then um worked in the top of the upper rangatata doing bird research work and you know so there's a lot of wild mushrooms and things mm. up there um, so really just being in tune with the um, environment and being in the outdoors a lot. And then, of course, I've got the technical skills through having done a degree and diploma in science at Canterbury University. So it gives me the confidence to know how to um, accurately identify species and also knowing the, mm. the associations of different species and the sort of taxonomy can give a quite a good idea of um, any possible toxicity related to um 
to wild plants. So it, it really is, I've become an accidental botanist really through foraging. Um, yeah. That, uh, I guess, humble beginning tied in with um, what, what you were talking about earlier about you know New Zealand being such a good foraging resource. Yeah. Like it's sort of, I guess it's an open book for you right now. You've, you know, you're really only probably touching the surface, I assume. Yeah, no, I am, yeah. No, so, um, yeah, definitely. And it's just a question of building up people's familiarity and confidence with using the ingredients now. So we, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we, we do have quite a few restaurants in New Zealand that are using wild forage foods, although admittedly most of them are still in a top 100. So it is seen really as a point of difference with restaurants that want to stand out with some sort of unique mm. statement that they'll make the extra effort to um, put forage foods on their um, menus. And it does, it does keep it exciting because you get regional food, it gives a sense of identity as well. And building this, the local food story is really important. I mean, you also get flavours and nutrition from wild plants that aren't always sort of commercially available. So it really increases mm. the diversity of, uh, you know, species you can access and I mean as a recreational forager it's affordable as well I mean I can when I'm snorkeling easily collect a big diversity of edible seaweeds and dry them out and you know to purchase some of these seaweeds you'd be looking at three or four hundred dollars a kilo for them when they're Mm. dried so it does it gives you a real resilience with um, the food that you can access and a lot of healthy foods as well and a lot of it is incidental to um, snorkeling and, and fishing or doing research in the outdoors so I always take a pack with me and I have um, stackable containers that can slide into each other and then I have some supermarket bags so I can compactly take a lot of containers and bags to potentially harvest a large amount if I ever came across a sort of wild food bonanza and you can unexpectedly (laughs) find things Um, and if you do you want to have the um, storage ability to um, pack them up and yeah just put some chill ice pads in the pack as well and keep things cool and so I can take it out so it is important when you're in the outdoors or you know going out foraging is to um, make sure you've got enough containers and, and just store them in a pack and they don't take up much space if you need to you can certainly um, you know use them to mm. yeah so you, what you sort of touched on it there um, I'll probably go back to the industry stuff, but so when you harvest seaweed as a prime example, yeah, like there is a, a harvesting method, like likes of I guess more in my warehouse would be fishing, yeah, um, or or, or um, shellfish, like diving, you know, snorkeling and so forth. You know, for us, it's always a priority to bleed it or clean it, and then have it on ice, you know, and chilled right through the way to getting home and prepared or what have you. Yes. Is that is that the similarity or is that the exact same as as a seaweed type oh it is yeah no it is definitely yeah i mean you want to keep things as fresh as possible and keep the cool chain in place also when you're foraging it's important to store each species separately so you know if ever later on you find there's something toxic you can easily isolate it from the rest of the harvest um otherwise if it's Mm -hmm. all mixed in together you'll have to throw everything out and that often happens Mm. when people are um foraging mushrooms as they'll harvest edible mushrooms but then they might have one or two uh, unknown or toxic mushrooms in amongst their um, collection and then really because the fact the spores can easily transfer between mushrooms you'll have to dump the whole lot so um, keeping things labelled keeping things you know nicely organised and keeping them cool is is pretty important Um, having said that Mm. though I mean if you're camping or you're in the outdoors you can easily um you know, collect some foods and, and dry them out as fast as possible and that's a good way of sort of preserving them. Um, so seaweeds, you do want to dry them out as fast as you can and then put them in a dehydrator and store them in an airtight container. And also with some of the wild greens, we've got really good potential to actually lacto-ferment them and make things like kimchi or sauerkraut from some of the wild harvested greens and that gives a lot of sort of nutritional benefit as well. There's definitely a... Um well, again, very, very entry-level uh, on my behalf, but, you know, likes of the, the kimchi or the um, kombuchas and all that sort of, uh, I guess, gut health stuff. It's quite a, um, well, popular, but a growth uh, industry is probably a you know, bigger word, but, you know, like it's, it is a growing household commodity almost. It is, yeah. It is quite cheap and affordable to do with a lot of the wild harvested greens. Um, I mean, in Wellington, you've got a lot of wild... Uh, 
rocket growing along the coastline and the coastal areas in Wellington and you can get the large rocket uh, rocket leaves and yeah, they're really good for fermenting and you know there's just a lot of wild greens that are out there that are really good you can get things like silver beet will often just spread wild along the coastline and obviously when the plant's growing in the wild it's generally going to have a bit more um, nutrition to it because it's surviving in, a, in an environment where it's sort of you know seasoned by you know the salt in the air necessity yeah, necessity. <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah yeah and so you know, we also generally we're dealing with you know keeping out wild foods by definition overall will be taken you know from an organic environment you know so we, we mm. deal a lot with edge environments so the edges of rivers edges of lakes you know the edges of suburban areas edges of parks you, you, so the edge environments, the in-between zones, the sort of no-person's no, no land in, in between is really where a lot of the good foraging opportunities are. Right. And generally you can tell if an area's been sprayed or not or has been modified by the types of plants that are growing. So if you've got a large diversity of plants growing in an area, it's generally a good indication that the area's not regularly sprayed. If it is regularly sprayed, then you'll generally get just one or two species growing. So um, if, you can, yeah, if you can read the environmental science, it's a really good indication you know, of, of how good a hmm. spot is for foraging. Yeah, right. Well, well, but from that, have you been ill from foraging? No, I haven't, no. So, um, you know, no. just been pretty lucky with it and um, probably got a bit of a cast iron gut. But um, So, yeah, <laughs> uh, eat a lot of wild yeah. foods. I think the more wild foods you eat, you know, the better resilience you got anyway. But, yeah, um, no, follow pretty simple protocols, really. Um, try to avoid getting any soil on any plants that you forage. Um, as mentioned already, just try and keep things nice and cool, keep them... You know, stored in a separately, have them labelled. You know, um, a, a lot of it is, is is pretty much common sense. You do have to be careful. Uh, things like watercress can often carry um, liver fluke or parasites like that, and so you know, just being aware of some of the you know. Inf- really, so the liver fluke like they like they find in deer. Yeah, so that, that yeah. watercress is quite a major uh, vector or host species for the uh, liver fluke. Really. Because that's, like watercress, I mean, I don't know if it's it's a result of the Barry Crump books or, but you know, that's kind of one of the, I guess, what what I would have considered an entry-level forage food, you know, pork and watercress or, or that sort of thing. Yeah, if you're going to eat it huh. raw, you'd want to be really careful not to take it from an area where there's lots of livestock because then the livestock increase the chances of the mm-hmm. fluke being in the watercress. But, yeah, things like terrestrial plants like puha and things like that are okay, but it's just because watercress are waterborne, the uh, liver fluke, you know, can get transferred. So, yeah, I mean, there are a few things to be aware of, but overall, you know, we don't have too many poisonous species in New Zealand. We we, we do have a few, like uh, toot and hemlock, and quite a few of the berries can be poisonous, like there's some coastal nio. Well, is that when you when you refer to poisonous? Is that, I guess, like truly toxic to us, or or you literally just get a little bit upset for a while? Uh, most of them, you probably get a little bit upset for a while. Yeah, right. Um, so I think you know, with, sorry, with um, toot, you would you can get quite a weird sensation going through your body. Apparently, it feels like electric shock, so it's not really pleasant. Doesn't sound doesn't sound, it's, um, doesn't sound very good. But what are, where else is Listening to you speak, it's funny, I guess, almost the how common and the relationship between the way you word around your forage goods to the way we word around our hunted goods. And the fact that, you know, we as hunters perceive and believe that our meat, is, is you know, based on it being organic, is, is healthier through necessity, but like the plant life, and then it's important for us to you know harvest it and keep it clean and keep it chilled and it's it's funny hearing you talk like it all makes sense but it's not wording i i had expected to hear from you okay yeah but yeah. That, that's because i don't know much about foraging yeah <laughs> but um you know well, going back well, yeah oh, i mean you, you've just got a lot of vitality in wild plants um and a lot of nutritional benefit i mean the plants are growing mm. out in the open sunlight and because they're in the wild environment, they have to defend themselves against insects that would eat them and things like that. So you get a lot of potency with wild plants. Um, so with a lot of the wild greens, you would generally tend to um, eat them in moderation and blend them up 
some of the wild corns, it doesn't right. matter, but you do have to be aware of um, toxicity if you're eating large amounts of certain things, so being aware of just balancing it out. But, you know, I mean, there's a lot of foraged mm. items that are pretty commonplace, like wild apples along the roadside, uh, wild plums. Yep. So, you know, and, and there's still a lot of opportunities to um, get those species of people that are travelling along backcountry roads. Yeah, well, I know, I know we... Um and I don't know if it's folklore or not, but the um, the crab apples, or you know, along the railway track here down in Central Otago, like what I was told was that was just from the um, the train drivers throwing their apples out the window, and and then there's the odd, like especially around Lake Dunstan where the old orchards used to be, like there's the old fruit tree, yes, sort of left over from that, yep. and that sort of thing. So yeah, certainly like less <laughs> less risky uh, type foraging, which is where I sit. <laughs> yeah, no, well, that's right. You can play the whole spectrum, and you also get a lot of rare heritage varieties of apples and plums growing in the wild that aren't commercially produced anymore. So I um mm. I found a, a russet apple tree in North Canterbury last year, and I harvested about half a ton of apples off it in a day, and uh, took them to a friend who's um, makes cider, so he's made a a cider from those apples, and they're a special heritage variety with a really crisp clean taste so um yeah no it's good just um having a network of people who can use the resources that you find is important as well you know just communicating with chefs or the you know how to use working with chefs about how to use these resources is quite exciting because they can develop Mm. recipes or meals using them and then we can um take some of those ideas into the broader public as well and it's just good for people to tune in to the quality of the local environment I mean that's a good thing about foraging you can you know it, it does tune you into the quality of the local environment but like hunting you know you get mm. a quick, pretty good idea of how how environmentally safe in the area is and how healthy and productive it is by um, what you hunt and then it's the same with foraging so we're looking generally for mm. pretty healthy environments with generally quite good um, nutrient levels that aren't too regularly um, sprayed or worked over so you say some of the sort of edge zone environments are pretty good but I mean I guess the reality is that over time our um, opportunities for foraging are, are, are sort of declining a little bit um, as far as locations go with a lot of development taking place and in, in, mm. you know and um, also you know with um especially fungi and mushrooms and puffballs are really sensitive to herbicides and pesticides on farmland so um, unless we're generally in an area where there's fairly rough farmland we are not finding as many um, mushrooms or fungi as we used to find mm-hmm. so that's why central otago is still quite good because there's still quite a lot of rough farmland once you get away from the yep. river flats you're away from the dairying areas so yeah, once you get yeah, back into the merino yeah. country it's sort of you know they the, the, they themselves do all right on the rough country so that, that sort of farming got left to the way it was. Yeah, no, that's the one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so, yeah. Um, you know, it's good though. I mean, you know, with the mushrooms, we've done a bit of research on it. And, you know, five years ago, we had about 15 edible wild species, but now we're up to about 70. So we've really gone through, really? yeah, we've gone through quite a dramatic growth curve with um, being aware of the species that are. Is that, is, that just, is that just identifying them? It also? is, yeah. Like we haven't. We haven't had a mass importation of different mushrooms. No, that's right. Yeah, just identification. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. yeah, as time goes by, we sort of build up confidence and we can learn to identify things a little bit more. And we're, you know, hmm. we're, we do build up our confidence. So, because certainly mushrooms is totally like Russian roulette. Um, uh, there really is no second chance if you eat one of the deadly poison species. Uh, it's, yeah, it's sort of game over. So, mm. um, you can't. You know, whereas with a lot of the a lot of the green plants and things, you would get sick and you would have some toxicity with some of the species. It really is um, the fungi that are, that are group that will generally just kill you outright. And with things like mm. um, death cap mushrooms, they'll kill you outright, regardless pretty much of dose. But really, yeah, yeah so they're pretty sure. pretty full on. We're quite lucky though. Death cap mushrooms are pretty rare and. Um, in New Zealand and especially in the South Island and um, so yeah but the mushroom group is, is, is of course the group that you have to be most cautious with um, take the most care with yeah and so people get overexcited and um, you can get mushrooms that look 
exactly the same from above but once you look at them from below and see the gill structure you'll realize they're different species and you might pick 99 edible mushrooms but then you might put in one brown gilled poisonous mushroom in amongst them and then say that will basically um, that, that that's all it takes um, so hmm. you've just got to be really real aware it really is um, a, a, the most pivotal case of sort of identifying your target as far as mushrooms yeah. go <laughs> it goes yeah. the other way but um, yeah so yeah no yeah, no, no definitely like yeah. it's the, I guess it is the one that is phrased quite often though you know in terms of oh, I found some mushrooms like oh how do you know they're not poisonous you know like it it is the one we sort of descript you know in terms of being dangerous more readily than anything else yeah I, I, that's my version of oh, it exactly yeah but, what, but but you know i mean uh, it's where the, the some of the best opportunities are though too for getting some of the best flavors from the wild so it really is a double-edged mm. sword so it is worth investing the time into learning the identification of the mushrooms because when you get it right and you're confident you can certainly um, pick some species that got amazing flavors so a really common mushroom that grows in amongst rough farmland, uh, rough pastures, is the ferrier and champion mushroom. And it's, it's traditionally a species that grows in circles, and it's quite small, but it's got a really nice, sweet, nutty flavour to it. And it's got several really key identifying features, like a really firm stem, and the gills of the mushroom curve into the cap before the stem, um, and then it's got a nice straw colour. So if you combine those three identification features together, you can... Un- confidently identify the species and so yeah and then combined with that the spore print on the mushrooms is important so you sit the mushrooms over some paper or cardboard overnight and they'll release the spores and spore color can be a um, important factor in identifying some of the poisonous mushrooms and some of the edible right. mushrooms so so say that one again i never heard this one. Oh yes yeah, so no just getting the spores released from a mushroom um so you put it on a piece of cardboard um, overnight and the spores will come out of the gills and then you'll get a radial sort of pattern on, mm. on the paper or the cardboard so the colour can be important so for things like field blue at mushrooms you would get a white spore print or a pinkish spore print um, that would confirm that it was a field blue but if, if it looked like a field blue and you got a brown spore print then it would be a um, probably one of the toxic species so it can be a really important mm. feature in identifying um, the mushrooms and so yeah it definitely is um, is it like sorry because obviously you've got a skill set and education in this but is this is this something you would do with most of your forage goods sort of collect look after them and then go home and I guess reevaluate their I guess the risk potential with them do 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 double check or I guess uh, is yeah, that something no, you double, suggest you do, to somebody new you know double checking is important just sorting things through you know just checking you've got no contamination from the sites um so if i was picking something like coastal beach spinach i'd double check that there are no fragments of nio leaves or nio berries in amongst it because often nio trees will grow above where the beach spinach is growing on the ground so yeah it is it is important just to do a quick sort through and double check and especially mm-hmm. too with mushrooms you always need to double check them um and just pick each one pick one mushroom at a time as you pick it identify it and um yeah just do a secondary check as well taking your time with mushroom foraging is, is the key and as say it's really a golden rule foraging is just to store each item that you collect separately from each other um and it sort of yeah it's just good practice to do that um so yeah mm. so we have a lot of um good to slow down and, and and be aware of it you really want to get it right first time now get the right stuff picked in the field mm. and then um you know yeah but it is good to have a well at table you can spread things out on and just have a secondary look through everything that you've collected and just check that there's no um foreign matter or um you you, you know just um you know especially with mushrooms it really is mm. uh, important to to double check uh, you know foraging is quite new in new zealand and certainly at a professional level we want to make sure that we do it right with my work i've been lucky we haven't made any mistakes and we've got good systems in place to minimize any risk but you know we, we have got to be ultra cautious because we really want foraging to have yeah. a good name in new zealand and we want to have people who've got the skill set to do it um professionally you know to demonstrate that and yeah it, it is so so on on that side of it like if i talk about the formality of foraging and what you do like are you legally able to sell 
goods that you gathered, I guess, from a free-range source to restaurants? It's like, so your business would be the collection side of that. Is that how that works? Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you need just a basic permit to um, do the collection. So what, oh, so you do need to get a permit yeah. from whatever yeah. the region is well or, the main thing is mm-hmm. just that I don't process anything I just collect the raw product and I have it in an unsorted right. state so once you start processing any wild food in any way such as washing it or things like that then you do get into a lot more um, food safety issues because then, mm-hmm. then you you need to have sort of regulated environments to do all that in. but I basically so there is there is obviously some legislation around foraging goods and foraging goods to supply, yeah, there is. Yeah, there's. It's still quite an open thing. You just need a um, national level one program permit at this stage to collect the um, forage goods. But say so once you get into any packaging or processing that modifies the raw product, then you, you go into a further area, sort of like general. an MPI almost sort of stage. Yeah, or the equivalent of you know if we were talking about hunting meat. And yeah, well, and processing stuff. Yeah, your forage items are still in a sort of grey area. The regulations around it are um, a little bit unclear. And MPI, I guess, because it's such a small market at the moment, and it is mm. likely commercially to stay quite a small market because the reality is that collecting a lot of the wild foods in a professional way and making sure it's a standard that restaurants can use is very time-consuming and you really do need to be able to optimise what you do. So the reality is that a lot of restaurants probably can't actually afford to use forage foods just because of the, the time and the collection factor involved. So yep. it really is some of the top-level restaurants that will generally um, work with foraged goods. Can it pass the costs on? And so, but but on, on that, though, do you think... Because I, I, I could see... Well, I do see, and I, you know, for good reasoning, seeing foraging grow... I mean, the supply to restaurants, you know, may have a, a bottleneck, but that just as a as a ground rule, foraging, like I could see that growing in interest. Like, do does does is there a need for some better legislation, or or at least a very clear understanding of legislation? Yeah, no, it's an, it's an interesting one. It's just it's a it's a, you know like especially for likes of yourself, you know, like it's kind of a a good thing when there's, I guess a broad range of understanding on legislation but then all of a sudden that can really go against what it is you love doing too you know like there's a, a mass interest in it all of a sudden and then you know you, you, you know you can find yourself saying oh we need more legislation around this or we need to stop people from being able to do this you know without proper education it's a hard one isn't it because you sort of you don't want to ruin what is a pretty good yeah you know, I don't know if casual is the right word but you know a casual um, activity to being overly formal, but then by the time they get to be need needed to be formal, like sometimes it's too late, isn't it? It's... Yeah, well, the costs could make it prohibitive as well, because that's another cost factor as well as um, all the regulation mm. and the paperwork. All that will have to be a time cost that would go to the end user. So um, mm. we do want to try and keep it as simple as possible and as common sense as possible. That's why, um, you know, generally very few chefs will actually make the effort to use foraged ingredients and the ones that do are generally ones that have got a really good understanding of the product themselves so they can um, have a second look over anything that comes in so yeah yeah. and that's why I think that commercially foraging will stay at at a niche level and it will be the um, top the top restaurants and some maybe some of the more innovative smaller regional restaurants that will use it so there's a really good restaurant Mm -hmm. on the Kapiti Coast 50-50 they um use a lot of forage ingredients from a local forager up there and um, they put some different menu uh, items on their menu uh, Amersfield that I primarily forage for in central Otago they um, use a lot of forage ingredients in their dishes and the executive chef there Mabe is very um, skilled and talented and he's got a really deep net understanding of natural history himself and so he he's got that passion and the affinity with using the wild ingredients and making that extra effort to get them on the plate and I guess you know because he's made that effort he's won um, the most innovative chef in New Zealand for two years in a row and then in the last year he's hmm. won the New Good Zealand top chef and so I've been working with him over the last three years when he's got those awards so um, I feel cool. quite proud to be part of the team that's yeah. been able to um, you know bring it to that level and we, we've 
taking the initiative of writing our own food safety plans and putting together our own spec sheets and um, so we've been really proactive we've got full traceability of everything that's foraged everything has a unique code on it so if ever we need to track back where it came from we could say exactly where and when it was foraged and you know but touch wood fortunately we haven't had to do that to date and as I say we do take a lot of precautions with everything that we um, put through so there's definitely things get checked at all stages and food safety is is really the number one we don't want anyone getting sick Mm. the reality is though because there's novel foods or different foods periodically people will get slight stomach upsets if they've tried Basic a new illness, food yeah. yeah so if you are if you are even recreationally going after and trying wild foods if you're eating something new generally when you eat it initially you don't want to eat a lot you just want to try a small amount of something new and then just um see how you go and then and the next time you find it or if you've already foraged it wait a few days wait a day and just just to check that you don't have any sort of reaction to um you know, to to the to the tox any potential toxicity. Yeah, which well, is different, isn't it? Can, it can be different for different people. So things like mm. onga onga or stinging nettle, some people will actually go into an anaphylactic reaction from contacting the native stinging nettle. And uh, as hunters, you know, it's something you encounter quite often. And for most of us, it's mm. pain in the ass, but it's not a major problem. But um, yep. I have actually experienced or seen someone actually go into a mild anaphylactic shock from contacting onga onga and so it's really important just to be aware of um, the fact that everyone's mm. going to have different levels of um, you know vulnerability to uh, things and as I say yeah well I know I've obviously through hunting especially the, like, with the dogs had my fair share of stinging it all but only the one time and I it was related to a lot of rain and I've heard that that had something to do with it as well but I actually had a you know tingling sensation and lost some sensation in my hand for like two or three days yes to, it, it, like it came back but um it was certainly something i you know i'd sort of brush it off as it didn't worry me or maybe it was just folklore and then yeah, all of a sudden i was like oh hang on there's truth to this <laughs> yeah no that's true so yeah no it does pay it does pay to be cautious i mean some people will say we'll have reactions to certain wild plants and it's just and it's an outside chance but um so we just you know we've got to be aware of that but so I do think the use of forage ingredients in restaurants will stay quite small and quite niche because of the technical skills required to have the confidence and then also with this grading because often wild plants will be um, in all types of different conditions so you have to put the time into grading them and presenting them and just having the confidence with the affinity and you, you know, so I mean the amount of foraged foods that's ending up in restaurants at the moment is pretty tiny, you know. And as I say, um, I I used to think I knew most of the restaurants in New Zealand, but pretty much the most of the ones I'm working with are in the top 100, and we've got nine and a half thousand restaurants in New Zealand. So it has stayed at a really specialised level, and it is the nature of it as well. You don't want the foraged ingredients to become commonplace and to be used too much because you want it to, you know have some point of difference but as recreationists you know we do, we don't we can sort of you know take a lot of the resources and just being aware of sustainability of, of any sensitivity with what you're harvesting but some species in the wild will actually probably benefit from being foraged or harvested because it stimulates more regrowth in the plant mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. a lot of the mushrooms because of the way they grow um, it doesn't actually really matter if, if they're um, all harvested or not too much because you know, one puffball can release literally millions of spores, and so it's if you found like a group of ten puffballs, if you took nine of them and just left one there to basically, you know, create spores, then that would be okay. Um, and a lot of the mushrooms, yeah, they the harvesting of the mushroom isn't really too much of an issue. Uh, it's more the environmental health that is that will keep the conditions right for mushrooms to keep on being available. Right, and so on on that, and I guess you've you've started on it already. Like, is it just straight out etiquette rule rules for the foragers, like amongst yourselves at the moment? You know, in terms of do you sort of stay away from where someone else forages, or you know, do you not over harvest from an area and and that sort of thing? Is that a yeah? It's all common sense, uh, isn't it? Really, I mean, I go back yep. to the same areas to forage, so. Um, I guess for that reason I know that what I'm taking is sustainable because um, 
being able to go back and you know the plants and the time and the intervals between my visits have been able to regrow so you know that that's a, a baseline sort of um, thing yeah and you you follow the same sort of um I guess Queen's chain and, and staying off private property or, or at least having permission to be you know you stick to all that sort of thing just like us hunters and other fishermen and so forth that's that's exactly right yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. But, yeah. I'd imagine from a a land owner point of view it would be quite interesting you know I think of it from a hunting point of view like when people go and knock on doors some I guess farmers typically are, are very welcoming of new hunters others sort of shy away due to previous bad experiences but to sort of have somebody knocking your door and say how hey, wondering if I could you know at least look but you know potentially harvest some you know or forage some goods from your land it'd be quite an interesting conversation because you I would imagine a majority of people don't even know the such is there that's exactly right so it can be quite a good educational process and making people aware um you know so where i picked the um apples the cider was made from you know i made sure i dropped the farmer in a couple of boxes of cider so you know it's just a question <laughs> of um you know being courteous and you know it's a good, yeah, good opportunity respectful. yeah respectful and just sort of sometimes it can be a good educational process because they'll realize it's something they had growing on the back door, um, you know, wasn't edible, and if they find out it is, then yeah, sure, they'll give it a go, and you certainly will. Hmm. And it's no, it's a good opportunity just to talk to people, and um, yeah, the education thing is sort of slowly getting out there, and just meeting people face to face out in the environment's always the best sort of place to talk about things. Mm. Um, so yeah, no, it is good, and most people are pretty open, and a lot of people will have trees that they won't harvest the fruit from and they just don't mind if you come in and do it um you know i might just um you know drop in a bottle of wine and take some lemons off a tree or something as well you know mm. and so it's it sort of trying to make it into a win-win situation and yeah some of the some of the forage species too i mean you know really prolific and um so like foraging crab apples and Arrowtown, well, a lot of the crab apples aren't used by anyone, but the restaurants can use them. They can extract some really nice flavours from crab apples for sorbets and mm. things like that. And so, being able to collect the fruit means that you know you haven't got all this fruit just falling and rotting on the ground, which then yeah, create, attracting you know, wasps. Attracting lots of wasps. <laughs> so yeah, wasps are a big yeah. problem, especially yeah. in places like Arrowtown. They can become really prolific. So, try yeah, with, with the foraging. We're, we're basically trying to keep it common sense, keep it simple, and you know, try to make it a win-win situation for everyone. Um, so that's really the essence of where it's at at the moment. And yeah, no, it is a pretty exciting time. The increase in foraging is, 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 is well, there is a really strong increase in foraging. It's um, getting a lot more popular now. And the more people that are doing it, the more people actually we're sharing observations on social media groups and we can um, all learn something from each other. When I take out foraging tours, I often learn from other people, I just learnt on a tour that I recently took out. We found some Himalayan honeysuckle, and the person said, showed me the um, nuts on it. And they said, apparently, you know, when they ripen a bit more, they got a really nice, almost burnt toffee flavour to them. So, you know, it's a, it's a real <laughs> um, learning experience. We all, um, you know, learn from each other through. Yeah, get a little bit from yeah each exactly. So, yeah. so, so, how often do you, how often are you foraging? I'll probably about three to four days a week. Really. Yeah. So it's quite a lot, yeah. and then, well, like I would assume, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but seasonally, the areas change. So then, are you like sort of travelling and deliberately going to new areas to sort of, I guess, meet the, um, what am I looking for here? To to meet the ripening of the forage good. Oh, for it? sure, yeah. It really keeps you on your toes mm-hmm. though, because it changes every year between locations. Yeah, and, and that is that's the element of. This element of foraging that keeps it exciting is the constant changes, the, con- the changes in locations, seasons. It's really dynamic. So, um, you know, at the moment, hmm. you know, and, and some of the mushrooms, they'll come up in large amounts some years and not in others. And hmm. um, so it's really patchy and timing is really important. Uh, everything's a bit of a mess at the moment in, in the South Island because the fruit trees are really slow. Some have ripened really fast, some have ripened really slow. We've got a ridiculous situation at the moment where we've got elder trees with flowers 
unripe berries and ripe berries all on the same tree. So yeah. we've got an asynchrony yep. with um, the ripening process because of the extreme weather that we've had. And so, you know, obviously climate change is going to be, or, you know, climatic variation is going to be a big factor as well. So you have to be quite an opportunist with foraging. You have to see opportunities. As I said earlier, always make sure you've got storage capability when you're out. So if you find something, you can pick it and have the capability to store it and transport it if you've walked into an area. I just foraged 15 kilos of um, gooseberries earlier this week, and so it was. I stumbled across those, but that was a really good find, and it was quite unexpected. There was a little freshwater spring where I found them, so even though the whole landscape around was quite parched and dry, there was just enough moisture in this area to get the gooseberries pumping, and, and they're really sought after by chefs. Um, even when they're mm. unripe, the chefs like using gooseberries because they've got a really um, strong flavour. Hmm. Based on, I guess, you sort of, to use a broad analogy like you, make make hay with the sunshine. Oh, exactly, yeah. you know. So do you, other than you obviously sell some goods, but do you like freeze and can or bottle, jar? Yeah, like exactly. Cider obviously is one example. But you, yeah. So you, you spend a lot of time in that, that form as well? Yeah, exactly, yeah. So that's a really important aspect is preserving the bounty when you suddenly come across large amounts. So... Uh, mushrooms are great for dehydrating because they'll basically if they're fully dehydrated in a in a proper dehydrator just a radial dehydrator even we can extract just like the wee fruit um, yeah fruit dehydrator yeah, like you sort of have the different stacks and... that's right so you have the stackable trays yep. and a radial dehydrator they're a really good investment yep. for someone to get if they're interested in foraging because you're right you can um preserve the seasonal bounty and yeah you can basically with things like mushrooms um, also reduce them by about 90 to 95 percent of their weight will be moisture so they really do um you know compact right down when they're dehydrated and same as do you, dehy- do you dehydrate them and then put them in a airlock container or do you freeze them at that point um oh well you could you dehydrate them just put them in a um in a in a, a, air, a airtight container with um you know stack it in quite tightly with some paper towels as that works but yeah also mm-hmm. you you could vacuum pack as well or even yeah vacuum pack and freeze and then you'll basically if you dehydrate vacuum pack and freeze then you know something will last forever um, but you yeah, know with things like mushrooms you just if you've got glass jars and that you just put them in an airtight glass jar um, we try to use um you know try to avoid plastics as much as possible really although in the outdoors plastic containers reusable plastic containers are still really practical so well, yeah it's a weight matters on it if you're carrying them around on your back for a while yeah exactly <laughs> and so yeah, even yeah. things like i put some power that i snorkeled last week in the dehydrator and dehydrated that right down and made some power jerky and it's quite nice to something to snack and oh, chew yeah. on so if you're going into the outdoors you know you can get a lot of these forage foods and make some really lightweight but highly nutritious uh, forage snacks to take into the backcountry with you and you know just chew on a piece hmm. of power and add some um, you know beautiful flavor just got to tenderize it a bit first yep. before you dehydrate it or you can soak it in yep. teriyaki sauce like you do with meats you know when you make jerkies well you can do the same mm-hmm. with seaweeds um things like powers as well um a lot of the fish like uh, kahawai you can also um, dehydrate and make jerkies out of so there's a lot of potential for um, dehydrating seaweeds, fish, um, mushrooms into really lightweight products. As you said before too, fruit dehydrates well and, you know, yeah, easy enough just to take into the backcountry as a snack and have dehydrated yeah. fruit. It's pretty, it is ridiculously easy to um, to make. The dehydrators are really good. Um, they, you know, generally a good unit will cost you just, well, I got one at Briscoe's. It's lasted me really well for about $100 and it's got eight trays and um, it will fully dehydrate it does take a while to fully dehydrate that can take anywhere depending upon what you put in from um, six to twelve hours and you've got to make sure of course that you do get it crispy dry dehydrators are a lot better than the oven too because when a dehydrator is going it will just reach a saturation point of dehydration and then it won't you know you, you don't have to worry about leaving it on after that Whereas right. if you've got something in the oven and if you get about it, it will burn and, and it's easy to... So, um, and a lot of the dehydrators too, you can just leave them on and they've got good safety features where if they start overheating, they'll automatically turn off. So um, they're quite safe with just turning and leaving on because, so you might have to have them going for about 12 hours to get something fully dehydrated. Yeah, huh. that's interesting. So 
poof, from there, what? And you, I think you sort of touched on it then. Like, but what are the benefits you would? What are the benefits you believe come from forage goods? Um, well, the benefits are. I mean, firstly, you can definitely get some really tasty forage foods out there and experience a range of tastes that aren't commercially available. That's one of the main benefits. Secondly, if, um, the nutritional benefits are generally pretty high in foraged foods because the plants have a lot of vitality growing in a wild environment. Um, you know, the food's um, f- free as well. I mean, if you're just getting it incidentally yep. to other outdoor pursuits, um, you know, it's generally, you know, you're getting a lot of free food. And it just um, also... When you're going out getting forage foods too, you're getting a lot of exercise and engagement with the local environment. So it's just a, a really deep feeling, a sort of satisfaction. It's a, it's like hunting or fishing. It's just that primal feeling yep. of satisfaction. Mm. And it doesn't come in plastic. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, yeah. But yeah, no, just, you know, using reusable plastic containers. And, you know, once you've got stuff at home, you put it in preserved, um, glass preserving jars. And yeah, you're right. Um, If you, if you want to preserve the bounty you know you can dehydrate it you can smoke it ferments like kimchi sauerkraut from it you can can it bottle it the you know the hunting we do in canada you obviously like a moose is a fairly big animal so a lot of that is uh canned and then we use that for the next season so essentially the the meat we harvest is is fueling the hunters and and the staff the next year so it's basically the canned or dehydrated that you know that's pretty much the stable for us actually yeah no it's true oh, you do want to have it's a variety good. of preservation methods to get a diversity of flavors but mm. yeah some people yeah you can reduce mushrooms down into stocks as well and then just freeze the stock so yeah and and we're obviously getting a lot of good facebook pages and groups as well on the preserving and canning methods for um for wild foods and then in north america there's a writer called Pascal Bedard and he's written some really good books called A Wild Crafted Cuisine about how to use a lot of the wild foods really innovative ways and he does things like really simple craft beers from wild foods and um, makes you know just does a lot of ferments as well but really does set a Mm. pretty high standard of of how you can use the flavors from a lot of the um, a lot of the wild foods and you get a lot of beautiful aromatic and strong flavors from wild foods as well but you have really got that sense of just eating healthy vital food from Mm. foraging so do you when you when you talk about it like that like do you you know if i said i guess between myself my wife say if i said you know our staple was like we've got milk bread and meat say in the fridge all the time but essentially you know do you have forage staples that you just always have not really, no. I mean, it just depends no. upon what I'm finding. Follow so, the season. Yeah, no, just follow the seasons. You know, try to eat a lot of stuff fresh and in season as well is quite important. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, as well as we, we did mention preserving and things like that, but you do just want to eat a lot of stuff fresh. So it is often quite opportunistic just depending upon what's around. The winter time can be quite good for foraging um, because a lot of the green plants have really got their full vitality in the winter and we get winter time is a good time of year for edible wild greens and then yeah in the autumn we've got obviously the mushrooms and stone fruit and things like that so mm. because of you know we're dealing with over six thousand species in new zealand that can be foraged really um there, at any time of year there will be something available you know that's in season so as i say really for me in the last week it's been gooseberries that have been in season and and um they're definitely worth targeting it is sort of like like I keep a um, a diary on my hunting, so at different times of years, and there is a little bit of variation, but different times of years, I will sort of have a an idea of the type of I guess topography or the landscape or the type of you know when briar comes in and all that sort of stuff. Do you have a similar mindset? So the gooseberries, like you, yes, it was a new find, but were you deliberately in an area that you thought might produce something of the likes? Yeah, well, that's right. You'll go into an area looking for one thing and then unexpectedly find something else, and that happens a lot. So that's what I would say, again, just sort of reiterate that point of always making sure you've got enough storage capacity in case you do come across a really good find. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah, you obviously do go in targeting a certain type of wild plant, but... You've always got that peripheral vision as well, looking at all the other stuff that's around, and um, you, know, you will find things unexpectedly in places 
um, and that's say what really keeps foraging exciting. Mm, cool. Here's one for all the hunters because <laughs> we're fairly uh, yep. our demographic is a lot of hunters. Yep. What would be something that they might? I mean, I, I guess now that I've had this conversation with you, this question already I know a little bit more of the answer already but like what would be something they might be able to source say if we're talking like native bush in New Zealand on an overnight hunting trip like what would be something that is is quite feasible for them to to pick and enjoy while they're in the mountain well yeah there'd be quite a few just sort of puhas are obviously one of the main ones um and and as Mm -hmm. we've talked about watercress as long as you get it from you know pretty clean sort of water there's a lot of alpine um, snowberries, things like that. Some of the native bush areas in New Zealand would probably be quite challenging, though, because especially in the beach forest areas, because you haven't got a lot of diversity. Most, in all honesty, most of my really productive foraging is in coastal areas um, or more lowland edge environments. Once you get back into some of the high country forests, um, the diversity is not that great, but Obviously, at this time, your field mushrooms would be something you'd really be keeping an eye out for. But then, you, if you're experienced, you'll start to see some of the other types of mushrooms that are available. Well, you know, you know, just the koru from a lot of the ferns are really good. They're, they're really tasty. And then, obviously, you can get things like horopido branches, and it's really nice for um, adding heat and seasoning to a lot of wild dishes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, some of the some of the backcountry forest blocks and that probably aren't that good for foraging because there um you won't have the diversity and especially if there's lots of wild pigs or deer or things like that around that you might have you might find they've actually got to the good stuff first <laughs> <laughs> but you do it. yeah yeah well, that's just yeah. part of it during i guess your time as a forager has have we you, like you've obviously told us about the i guess you know the finding of new species but has there been many declines in some of our edible plant um, nothing measurable, no. I mean, a lot of it is pretty um, dependent upon habitat and environmental quality, and I think foraging is unlikely really to have much of an impact. It's really secondary to keeping the environment healthy, and that's why, for me, I think foraging is good to get kids out and families out foraging and making them aware of what they can you know, harvest and take home to make a salad or, you know, to make some tasty dishes with it, it, it really it, it's really keeping the environment healthy that's important i think it's the same with white baiting too we've got to keep the rivers healthy we've got to keep the spawning yep. habitat for the white bait important and i think really the white bait harvest itself is very secondary and well down the line as far as actual the viability impact, of the, or negative yeah, impact yeah so mm. it's a question of yeah making sure that we just keep the environment healthy and productive and um, a lot of areas that actually have intensive predator or pest control actually are probably the best areas for foraging because the possums and all the other um, species haven't got to the plants first and a lot of, yeah, a lot of the native forest has been quite stressed in New Zealand so we tend to find in a lot of areas that the actual fruit production of the trees is right down and um, so things like native passion fruit that we find in some areas is generally a good indication that you know there's predator control and there's not too many possums around. <laughs> That's why I say. I didn't, even know yeah. we, I didn't even know we had a native passion fruit. Yeah, no, we do. Yeah, no, it's a really nice species. Yeah. Hmm. So, in your, in your, on your opinion, in your opinion, yep. could somebody that I guess hunted or fished, but you know, I guess you probably don't even need to do those either. Could you entire? Could you forage and live entirely off the land? Yeah, I could. Yeah, for sure. Yep. 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 No, it wouldn't be a problem. But I'd say a lot of their foraging would be coastally based. Yep. Rather than inland areas. Um, so you put me in a beach forest in the centre of Arthur's Pass, I'd probably struggle, but because of the low diversity in those environments. But yeah, no. Once you build up the awareness of what's around, you know, you've got eels, you've got trout, um, you know, all the wild animals. Um, yeah, the, the diversity is, is really big. We've got, you know, a lot of shellfish in New Zealand that are edible that people aren't really that aware of. And so, yeah, the, a lot of a lot of nice, tasty fruit out there as well. And, yeah, you just build up the knowledge over time. Um, but certainly I could easily live on foraged foods for a year. No worries at all. Hmm. So you still actively fish as well? Oh, uh, yeah, I do, yeah. So I do, I do a lot of sea fishing and a lot of trout fishing. So pretty yep. much we're across the board with that. 
Did you, were you ever into hunting or just didn't, fishing was more, more the route, I guess? Um, yeah, I've, I've done a little bit of hunting, yeah. Uh, Canadian mm-hmm. geese and a small game, but, you know, I've got yep. a lot of friends that are into hunting and, you know, just getting into the foraging allows me to explore something that's a bit new and I say it's exciting because I feel I'm on the sort of edge of something new that we're exploring and defining in New Zealand. Um, yeah. So that's, uh, yeah, but no, I can certainly understand the thrill um, of hunting as well. And yeah, I just, I do love uh, fishing and, you know, with trout fishing, I love sight fishing, which really is an active form of hunting anyway, because we're yep, lining up individual is. fish. Yeah, no, no, certainly um, game bird, upland game bird hunting. Yeah, we're, uh, we're heading up to the, the upper Manabin, one of our high country dams on uh, Sunday so hopefully the weather holds out and the cicadas are going flat tack onto the water and the fish are going flat tack at them yeah yeah that's true <laughs> that's my unwritten plan at the moment uh, yeah sure but uh, you, we'll, we'll see what happens <laughs> yeah yeah you should take some um, cora pots up as well because there's a lot of freshwater crayfish in those lakes and yeah there is the, yeah, 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 yeah yeah no we'll yeah. definitely put a couple in because I'll, I'll probably take the boat up to the top end so yeah. uh, we'll probably do that on the way past but um, one, one, on the fishing thing, one of the things I did see, or what I've actually sort of seen it come out of your, well, social media stuff a couple of times is, I guess, highlighting the awareness of what we as Kiwis typically use as bait fish, um, actually having a, a value or, you know, as a, as a table fish. Exactly, yeah. Well, we eat white bait and that's pretty much one of the smallest fish in New Zealand you can catch, so... <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but so you, like you do do quite a bit of that. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. Yellow-eyed yeah. mullets are great fish because they're just so common and prolific around New Zealand, and they're pretty much available actually all year round as well. And they can reach quite large sizes, and you can just use different preparation sizes. Sorry, different preparations depending upon the size of the fish. So your bait fish are really tasty and. Um, if you follow some of the ways that they're prepared overseas, you can come up with some really tasty ways of presenting them as well. So what, what do you think we don't, or well we, when I say we as Kiwis, like why do you think we typically don't go down that route just because we have such readily accessible, I guess, more acceptable fish? That's a yeah, exactly, to, yeah. No, sort yeah. of, <laughs> to, to describe what I was trying to say, but we wouldn't, say, eat a yellow-eyed mullet, but then we'd, the first blue cod we caught, especially down here in the South Island, or the first snapper, you know, like we'd take that home. Yeah, exactly. No, it's right. Well, it really is, you know, there's a saying that a, a friend of mine, Johnny Schwass, said about food, you know, it's the, uh, it's really get some of the best cuisines in the world from peasant cultures. So if you've got an overabundance of fish or hmm. meat, it can actually That's sort really of stifle cool. the development of, you know, sort of eking out the sort of necessity and, and looking at the diversity. So you're exactly right because we've got good numbers of the larger fish a lot of people have overlooked the smaller fish um like the mackerel the garfish yellow-eyed mullet so they're really tasty mm. fish and really nutritional really nutritious as well um but you do get some beautiful flavors I and mean, you catch something like a 500 gram blue mackerel from wellington harbour and it's one of the tastiest fish there is in new zealand uh, when it's small mm-hmm. and it's fresh um amazing flavors uh, jack mackerel hot smoked small jack mackerel hot smoked are really delicious as are large yellow-eyed mullet and then the smaller ones what we do is um take the sides of them soak them in take the main bones out we leave the small bones in and then soak them in vinegar for um 12 hours drain off the vinegar and then just preserve them in olive oil so you, you've got different ways of preparing fish of different sizes mm. um mm-hmm. and because the bait fish resource is quite prolific around new zealand and um it's the sort of thing you too you can gather as a family you know so you can get a throw net which is a really exciting way yep. of catching bait fish and people love using a throw net it's um you know, it's quite an engaging way to fish, and it's quite exciting. You might, you know, have a whole good way to get a laugh out of Dad trying to work it for the first time. Yeah, yeah, it takes it takes a little <laughs> bit of practice, but yeah, no, it's worth giving a shot. No, that's cool. And then, so on that, I guess, sort of vein of, um, well, the whole foraging aspect, and they're using less socially acceptable resources in terms of the fish. And that what about eating insects? Is that a foraging type direction, or is that a whole different avenue? Oh, it's all part of the spectrum, really, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you see that? Because I've sampled a few between either travelling or, or a World Foods Festival, so there's very different ends of the spectrum of tasting it. But, you know, when you read about it, it's a, a lot of it makes sense. It's just got to become socially acceptable, doesn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, I think the more people that forage, 
more socially acceptable becomes, more people engaged, and so we're in quite a major growth curve at the moment with it. Um, the Christchurch hmm. City Council's put out a map of all the fruit, fruit trees in, in Christchurch, and um, they're encouraging people That's to go cool. foraging in the red zone. Which might work to a certain extent, but you have to be careful, um, you know, with some of the resources to not overly publicise them either. So there's quite a few sense. Yeah. We have a scale, you know, some things you can we can all share and tell each other about, but there are definitely some some of the resources that we want to keep reasonably quiet about as well. So that's sort of like hunting. Mm. You've got to... You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's, there's a few common areas yeah. and then there's a few secret gullies. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. And so with your um, courses, is, is that how you word it? Like your when you take people out? Yes. What sort of demographic are, are these people? Uh, I know all age groups, yeah. No, I've taken out whole mm-hmm. families and kids to um, grandparents. Um, you know, there's, there's no real set demographic, and that's the real good thing about foraging is it goes just across the whole board. That's cool. It's really cool. Well, Peter, man, that's... Um like I've I've learnt a lot. Okay, cool. <laughs> sort yeah. of, I've sort of got to a bit, a bit of a brain meltdown. To be fair, like I've actually <laughs> learnt a lot. But before we stop talking, like, how do people? You know, if people are interested in foraging. Can they sort of message you? Because I know you've got you know likes of the Instagrams and stuff. Like, is that is that how people would contact you? Like, or do you mind to be contacted? No, you know, I'm, I really enjoy being contacted. So just through um, mm-hmm. Wild Capture Wild Foods um, Facebook page. Or, um, yeah, just on Instagram with my name, at Peter Langlands, and people can just send me a message on Instagram or uh, through Facebook or um, direct through the Wild Capture page, Wild Capture Foraging, or that people can, you know, contact me directly by phone. I mean, I'm happy to give my phone number out. So that's 0274 Just to email me, um, my surname, Langlands, L A N G. L-A-N-D-S, so yeah, langlands at extra.co.nz. And, and I say I learn a lot from other people as well, so it's a real two-way process. And mm-hmm. I'm just happy um, to you know, engage with people. Cool. We, we're hopefully going to have a National Foraging Day on the 15th of March, and that's um, gonna, cool. I'm going to be involved with that with a crew up in Wellington with the uh, local Wild Food Challenge out of Eastbourne. And so, yeah, and we're going to have hopefully have a range of events taking place around New Zealand just to sort of launch foraging into the popular realm. And so we have got a lot of communities and groups around New Zealand. I generally, um, yeah, I'm this year looking at actually travelling around New Zealand doing foraging workshops and educational tours and generally try to organise them fairly short notice when I can fit them in and yeah. we generally prefer small groups well, 8 to 12 people and we'll just look around a certain area and um, show people what's growing on the back doorstep that's that's really cool so I'll, I will put all the uh, contact and links on the bottom on our website for this podcast oh hey thanks Karen and then perhaps if you get a little bit more detail around some of that stuff yep. we'll, we'll happily share that too because I think that'd be cool g'day thanks for listening to the Educated Hunter podcast there are a number of ways you can connect with myself, Matthew Gibson, or my partner in crime, Curran Island, at The Educated Hunter. And the hub for all of this is our website, theeducatedhunter.com. Our Instagram page is at theeducatedhunter. Our website also has a spot where you can sign up for our newsletter that comes once every two weeks and is full of relevant information about hunting in New Zealand and around the world. And lastly, you can search out any of the episodes that we've done in the past and find the show notes on that episode other than that thanks very much for listening and i hope you're having a good day wherever you are and your next hunting adventure is not too far away